It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. What's up, everybody? Longevity is an obsession of mine. It's a topic I've been focused on for years, and it's something I'm always excited to talk about. And my guest today, Peter Atiyah, is one of my favorite people on this topic. I think he's insanely knowledgeable. He's the co-founder and chief medical officer of the popular fasting app Zero, as well as a best-selling author, podcast host, and longevity expert. In the first part of this two-part episode, Peter continues the trend recently of upending ideas around health, longevity, and body fat that I thought I was so sure about before reading his latest book, Outlive. I loved recording this episode, and in it, Peter breaks down why diet isn't the cure-all that we thought it was, and he explains the difference between lifespan and health span, which is very important to understand, and we get right into how it actually is possible to be obese and still be metabolically healthy. I cannot believe this is true. As a side note, we've just launched our exclusive Impact Theory subscription service that takes your podcast listening experience to the next level. So if you are tired of ads cutting into your favorite episodes, the best part, we've got you covered. With our extra Impact subscription, you can listen to Impact Theory completely ad-free. But that's not all. We've also curated amazing playlists on topics like health, mindset, business, and relationships, making it easy for you to deep dive with hundreds of experts and relevant topics. Plus, we're offering bonus monthly episodes that you won't find anywhere else. Click through the show notes to subscribe to Apple Podcasts or Supercast. And guys, do not wait on this. The time to invest in yourself and access this incredible resource is right now. Get ready to unlock your true potential and enjoy an unparalleled listening experience with our Impact Theory subscription service. Plus, it's the best way to support the podcast so that we can get to more people just like you and help them be legendary. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. The higher that level, the longer you're going to live. There is no number There is no biomarker, there's no finding in all of biology that is more predictive of a person's length of life than that specific number. You have a quote in the book that goes something like, I used to think that diet and nutrition were the cure-alls and now I'm not so sure. How is it possible that diet and nutrition, which would have been the thing, and I've said many times on the show, if if you just let me control 100% what people eat, I, I've got them covered. I'll control their body composition. But the one thing I always caveated was, I don't know that I'll keep them alive longer because I'm running an N of one experiment. So what made you start to lose faith that diet and nutrition were the answer? Well, I, I think it's important to differentiate between a couple of things. So I definitely don't want... Um, what I've written or what you've correctly interpreted to imply to people that I don't think nutrition is important. 
right? What I'm really saying is nutrition is an asymmetric input to the equation, if we want to think about it technically, meaning it has far more downside if you get it wrong than it has upside if you get it right. That's interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah. So getting it wrong will really hurt you. Getting it right, meh, it's not going to make you live to 200. That's right. I mean, first of all, I don't think anything will, but yes, that's the Nothing. right idea. No, absolutely not. So, so if you get it wrong, and let's be clear, we are living in a case study of getting it wrong, right? Most of Meaning us- the standard American the diet. The standard American diet is all about getting it wrong for virtually everybody. So we're, we're watching proof positive what it means to get it wrong. Mm. But what I want people to understand is it's very easy to get to that point where you think, okay, I'm going to fixate on this thing and it's going to get better. And that's wonderful, by the way, if you do. But you're, if you do that at the exclusion of some of the other things, namely exercise, um, you're really leaving an opportunity on the table. And exercise has more of a symmetric upside and downside. In other words, if you are not exercising or you're not exercising sufficiently, there's huge downside. Mm. But unlike nutrition, if you get exercise right, there's enormous upside. There is true life extension and remarkable health span extension, which might be even more important. I'm really, uh, I'm bothered by that. And it- Why are you bothered something? by that? Because I hate exercise, dude, in a way that you can't imagine. So literally <laughs> while, while I was reading your book, which I always do as an audio format, I was doing um, air squats and sit-ups and stuff. Because just hearing you talk about the importance of exercise, it really is the thing that I have always done out of obligation and never out of joy. Mm. So I always thought, again, literally until reading your book, that I was way better off controlling diet. And you get this, the classic phrase, you can't outrun a bad diet. Can you? Like, are you saying that you can? Well, again, we want to, so that's a complicated answer, which we'll take in steps. So there's probably a season in your life when you can generally when you're young and if that exercise is at a high enough level, you can. So just using my own personal example, absolutely. When I was growing up, so in my teenage years, right, 13 to 19, I didn't pay any attention to what I ate other than I was always eating. And when I say I was always eating, I'm not exaggerating, right? Like I, every morning breakfast was a box of Fruit Loops or Captain Crunch my or favorites. some unbelievable crap that could only be consumed in a Tupperware bowl bigger than my head, nice. uh, you know, with a liter of milk. Uh, lunch was uh, usually seven sandwiches, which was oh a, my lo God. It's a full loaf of bread. What were you doing? I was exercising six hours a day. Jesus. Were you a wrestler or something? Boxer. Oh, yes. I so, that. you know, running minimum five, typically mm -hmm. closer to 10 miles every morning, 25 minutes of rope jump, two and a half hours of weight training, sparring, bag work every single day, mm. 400 pushups before bed every single night Jesus. with one exception. One night in high school, I didn't make it happen. Wow. You actually remember that it was only one time? It was one night. I was so goddamn sick that I couldn't get out of bed for a whole day. And that was the only wow. night in all of high school I didn't do my 400 pushups before bed. Huh. I was so pissed off. So um, that even now you remember I that there was remember. one day, I love it. But my point is, I didn't stop eating. I was eating mm. French fries, crap, all day, every day. I couldn't gain weight. I was trying to move up a weight class. I couldn't. Because of the exercise yes. or your genetic proclivity? No, I just think, I mean, that that much exercise, mm. you're, you can eat whatever you want. Mm. Um, now, could I exercise that much today? Could I, could I out-exercise a bad diet today? No. At 50, I can't do what I could do when I was 15. All right. I want to get into the mechanisms of that. So here's another one of my ignorant statements that I live by. Uh, this is all a game of controlling your glucose. 
And that if you let me control your glucose levels, then I basically control your destiny. And I want everybody listening to know that after reading this book, I know this is probably not only overly simplistic, but maybe even just wrong. Correct. But uh, in exercising like that, it feels like, okay, well, you're burning all that glucose. So the glucose isn't going in and wreaking havoc on your system. Um, Are you saying now mechanistically that... At, at this age, I guess that's like you either you can't there's do two, the volume of yeah, workout. I, I think or? there's two things going on, right? One, I simply couldn't do. I I don't think I could do in one. I don't think I could do for one day what I did for five years mm. every day. Just too taxing on the system. It's at just this age. too difficult. Like I don't have the physical capacity to go. Like today, if I went out and ran ten miles, I'd be beat for the rest of the day. Like mm. that would be my day. Whereas I had done that before six in the morning every day and I was just getting started. So I simply can't do what I used to be able to do. So I think that's just a big part of it. But also as we age for reasons that are not entirely clear, we do become less metabolically healthy. Our mitochondria become less efficient. Our muscles become more insulin resistant. Mm. Part of that's driven by hormones. Part of that's driven by enzymes. I mean, we know that testosterone is going down. My testosterone is actually quite low. You know, I'm sitting here kind of on the fence contemplating, should I really start testosterone replacement therapy? Because my testosterone has kind of been in the crapper for a few years. Mm. But I know Give it was- me crapper. Very, what, what number? Oh, I sort of hover in the 400 nanogram per deciliter mm. range. And I've kind of been there for- a few years and now. you've tried to elevate it naturally and can't um i mean only in that i'm doing all the right stuff like i sleep incredibly well but my fsh and lh are really at the upper end of normal in other words like everything from my brain is doing the right thing my brain is telling my body to make testosterone but you know i'm sort of at the limits of what my body's willing to make right now which mm-hmm. is you know probably i'm at the, about the 20th percentile now, one time you and I had spoken about testosterone replacement therapy and you said you prefer to do precursors and yep. not, so would you still do the precursors if you do it? I'd probably start with a precursor or a, or a pre-hormone like HCG. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't use Clomid, which is another one, um, and give it a shot and see if that could really wake things up. But, you know, eventually, you know, I'd probably need testosterone, um, But even that, like even if you restored my testosterone levels to what they were in my teens or 20s, I'm not sure that that would be remotely sufficient to address the metabolic changes that have occurred in me. Um, You know, I probably have less hormone sensitive lipase uh, or, or lipoprotein lipase rather on my muscle cells and more of it on my fat cells. In other words, my body is probably more inclined to fuel partition unfavorably meaning it's probably more inclined to take energy and put it into fat cells as opposed to direct it towards muscle cells. Mm. So all of that is to say there's no way today I could out-exercise a bad diet. And as a general rule, again, at least if using uh, body composition as the metric, yeah, it's a pretty good um, you know rule of thumb that you're not going to out-exercise a bad diet, but there are exceptions, clearly. Okay, so I want to linger on this idea for a second that because this, the reason that I am really, I've always steered myself towards things that you say is because you have a really deep ability to get to the mechanism of action. And so this idea that uh, a diet is incredibly important in terms of you have to do the right thing to avoid downside, but it's not really going to elevate you. Now we hand over to exercise and exercise 
is potentially going to now pull you farther forward, but I want to understand why. So is it, you talk a lot about in the book stability, is it just that I'm not going to fall? Or is there something going on at the cellular level that becomes important? Uh, it's all of the above. So, um, you know, generally speaking, we think about this through the lens of health span and lifespan. So let's just start with the lifespan side of that. And we can even go back and talk about the nutrition piece, right? So if your nutrition is suboptimal, what does that mean? There are mm. lots of ways your nutrition can be suboptimal. It can have too many calories in it. It can have too few calories in it. Uh, it can have too little protein in it. It can have deficient micronutrients in it. I mean, those would kind of be some of the big examples of where nutrition can be off. And those will produce different phenotypes. You could be underweight. You can be overweight. You can be insulin resistant, which comes hand in hand with excess nutrition. You can be under muscled, which would be a result of low protein intake. So, and then you can have a whole bunch of sort of deficiencies like B vitamin deficiencies and vitamin D, all sorts of nutritional deficiencies that come from not getting the right vitamins and micronutrients. Mm. On the exercise side, we can go through the same exercise. By the way, on, on the nutrition side, that mostly impacts lifespan. Those deficiencies disproportionately point towards a shorter lifespan. Mm. So as you increase adiposity, you increase, meaning as you get fatter, um, you increase the odds that you're going to start spilling that excess fat from the safe place that you can store it, which is in your subcutaneous fat cells as athletic, as aesthetically unappealing as that is, mm. but otherwise metabolically quite inert, you start spilling that into places where fat shouldn't be inside the liver, inside the muscle itself, uh, meaning right inside the muscle cell around the pancreas, around the heart, around the uh, kidneys, around the organs itself is visceral fat. Once you start spilling fat there, all of a sudden your risk of every disease, every chronic disease goes up. And it goes up a lot, right? I mean, we're talking about a doubling of risk of cardiovascular disease, cancer, and neurodegenerative disease, Jesus. especially Alzheimer's disease. Don't blow past that. So I need to understand this mechanism. So it's, um, you're filling the fat cells. You're also making new fat cells. You, at some point Not so much. You basically- I'm talking about when it's working well. Oh, the, no, no, no. You're just filling the fat cells. Yep. And the subcutaneous fat cells are accommodating the increase in energy storage. Mm -hmm. So again, even though, you know, culturally we don't like that, that means you're getting fatter. Yeah. Yeah. evolutionarily, that's an enormous leap step forward, mm. right? This is what allowed us to basically develop monstrous brains is the ability to store lots of energy. Mm. So we weren't dependent on meal to meal because our brain is by far the most energy hungry part of our body. So you have this organ weighs 2% of your body weight, consumes 20 to 25% of your energy. Mm. Any interruption in energy is going to prevent the brain from working. Right. So in order to evolve very quickly and basically hit escape velocity on all other species, this was our trick. Hmm. How could we become efficient at storing energy? And fat is by far the most efficient way to store energy. So this is all very good. It only becomes problematic when you live in an, an environment where there is so much abundant energy that you exceed the capacity of this system to safely store it. Right. So the way you can think of it, I think I described it this way in the book, is a bathtub. You have a bathtub that is your the total depot of all your fat cells. Water is energy, is flowing in. There's a little drain that safely drains water out. That's your expenditure of energy. The balance between those two things determines the water level. At some point, if the input is so much greater than the output, you will not only raise the level of water to the point where it's getting bigger, you'll start to overflow. Hmm. It's that overflow that's destructive. 
right? All right. So does your body store visceral fat without overflow? No, visceral fat is part of the overflow. Okay, so is visceral fat made up of the same sacs that I would find in my subcutaneous fat? Um, it's, uh, no, it's it's actually kind of a different location altogether. And it, it's, it behaves very differently. So visceral fat is far more inflammatory. Hmm. In fact, that's part of the problem. Y- you know, if we do a DEXA scan on a person, which is how you can measure some of this stuff, you do a DEXA scan on a person that weighs 200 pounds, that has 25% body fat. So by definition, based on those numbers, they have 50 pounds of fat. But let's assume that of that 50 pounds of fat, the visceral fat is five pounds. So 10% of their fat is visceral. Mm -hmm. That five pounds of visceral fat is wreaking all the damage in their body. The Hmm. 45 pounds of fat that is not visceral, totally inert. Okay, let me describe it in a layperson's way. So subcutaneous fat is water inside of a water balloon. Visceral fat is water on your sweatshirt. Yeah. And your sweatshirt now is just fucking wet and nasty. Yeah, think about the bathtub analogy, right? The the subcutaneous fat is the water in the bathtub. It's totally Mm -hmm. fine. The visceral fat or peripancreatic or intramuscular or intrahepatic fat is when it gets out and starts leaking through your floors. So it's the same stuff. It's the same stuff. Just one is in its rightful container and the other, it's just glommed onto something. That's right. That is really interesting. So, So for example, in the muscle, what does that fat do that's so destructive? It impairs the signal of insulin, not to get terribly detailed, but you like the mechanism, right? Insulin hits a receptor called the insulin receptor. That insulin receptor triggers a cascade, a chemical cascade in a muscle cell that tells a glucose transporter to move up to the cell and allow glucose to come in. That's the way it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. When you have fat inside the muscle cell, that signal gets broken. Hmm. So that's what the, that's the first sign of insulin resistance. And the body says, Hey, I, I need to get rid of this glucose. I need to get this glucose into the muscle. That's where we store glucose. I can't, I need more and more insulin to do this. And mm-hmm. eventually you run out of ways to do that. So initially you can make the glucose go away, but you need more insulin. Eventually all the insulin in the world doesn't do it. The glucose goes up. That's called type two diabetes. Okay, so how do I overwhelm that system? If I have a binge night on a Saturday and I'm going ham on the ice cream, am I gonna overwhelm the system or do I have to fill the fat cells first? Is it basically speed or quantity? So two separate things there. So if you're just having one binge night eating ice cream and stuff, you're you're binging, you know, you're, you've got glucose and fat and you, you, may, you may well dispose of those things fine. It depends on your incoming state. So if you're a relatively healthy person, an insulin sensitive person, a night of binging really isn't going to cause any trouble. Certainly nothing long-term, right? What we're really talking about is the chronic result of doing that. And so the the glucose piece and the fat piece are slightly different. The the glucose piece is very tightly regulated. Um, you know, if you consider the difference between a person who doesn't have type 2 diabetes and someone who does, it's literally only the difference of one teaspoon of sugar in the blood. That's I mean, it's a Mm. remarkable difference in terms of how subtle it is. Uh, That's how tightly the body wants to regulate glucose. Mm. So when the body can't do, when the body can't regulate glucose, that becomes type two diabetes. Long before that's happened, you've usually started exceeding your storage of fat. Mm. And, And it's that excess fat that spills out of the bathtub that is making the body 
dysfunction around glucose regulation. I've recently heard that it's more dangerous to be a lean diabetic than to be an obese diabetic. Do you agree with that? The data absolutely suggests that that is the case. Okay, so if I'm a lean diabetic, then what that predicts is that my water balloons are very small and they just can't take much water. And so they keep spilling back out, spilling back out, spilling back out. So if I'm a lean diabetic, I probably have a ton of fat around my viscera. Yeah. And that doesn't translate to much weight on the scale because you don't Mm. need much of visceral fat, peripancreatic fat, intrahepatic fat. You don't need much of it in in total mass to cause absolute metabolic destruction. Okay. And so so that's why the lean insulin resistant, the lean person who's metabolically unhealthy has the worst outcome. So interesting, man. So, okay, before reading your book, I would have come in uh, and said, all right, let me just look at the person. I'll ballpark you. If they are lean, they're almost certainly fine. And if they are obese, they for sure, no question, they have a problem, metabolic disorder, they're in danger. Uh, I get the feeling from reading your book, while that may sometimes be correct and maybe directionally at the population level, it's fine, but that an individual actually can be fat and healthy and that a lean person can effectively have the blood of somebody who's morbidly obese. Yeah, you're absolutely right. At the population level, we can look at things like BMI and make general broad statements, Mm -hmm. but at the individual level, To do anything other than ask the question specifically about that person is to do a disservice. And you're right. Up to a third of people who meet the BMI criteria for obesity, they are metabolically healthy and their life expectancy is the same as a lean person. Jesus. Okay. So when I read that in your book, I actually had this impulse. I'm ashamed and I would never act on it, but I had the mask mandate impulse of like, you can't tell people that. Like you, you're you just better off telling them that being fat is gonna kill you, don't be fat. Well, so this is where nuance comes into uh, consideration. Everything I just said is more about lifespan, but let's mm-hmm. talk about health span. Okay. There are reasons to not be obese that go beyond, you know, premature cardiovascular disease, cancer, et cetera. Think about the impact it has on joints. So it's not necessarily going to shorten your life if you're metabolically healthy, but there are still other consequences. That's right. Got it. And okay, joints just because I'm carrying so much weight? Yes. Every time you take a step while walking, your knees are experiencing approximately three times your body weight in terms of force. Jesus. When you're running, it's about eight times your body weight. Hmm. So losing weight has a very non-linear effect on your joints. And similarly, gaining weight in the negative direction Mm. has a very non-linear effect on joints. There's a reason that now I'm not that psyched about running the way I was when I was 25 pounds lighter. Mm. When I was 25 pounds lighter, my joints handled it effortlessly. Today, I don't know, I'd probably get away with it, but I'd have to really reduce my volume. And frankly, I just choose not to. I much prefer to get my cardio doing things that aren't having impact on my joints. Yeah, we don't want to dismiss the orthopedic causes uh, of, you know, reduced morbid, uh, reduced, morta- um, reduced mobility um, and weight plays an absolute role on that. Furthermore, I don't want to suggest that body composition doesn't matter. Lean mass absolutely does matter. Um, and it's really what people should be focusing on. So this gets back to the point of, you know, the reason I'm not a huge fan of sort of population-based metrics like BMI is they just don't contain enough information, Mm. right? Like a very, very muscular individual will 
couldn't have a BMI of an obese person. So uh, obese is defined as a BMI of 20, uh, pardon me, of 30. Overweight is a BMI between 25 and 30 is overweight. I think my BMI is like 28. Mm. So I'm, I'm closer to obesity than normal weight, but I'm not based on body composition. Yeah. So People body composition just is what we're really and not watching. He's, he's got some muscle on him, this kid. No, I mean, I'm like, you know, just, I'm a relatively normal, healthy guy. And that's <laughs> what, by what metric do you consider your physique normal? Like the normal person in America yeah, is maybe not, maybe not. heavy. Yeah, sure. Um, so anyway, my point being, when we look at our patients, we, I don't know my patients' BMIs. I mm. couldn't care less. I want to know how much visceral fat they have. I want to know how much total body fat they have. I want to know their bone mineral density. And the metric I probably care most about or at least as much as bone density and visceral fat is something called appendicular lean mass index and fat-free mass index. What is that? So appendicular lean mass index is take the total amount of muscle mass in both arms, both legs, in kilograms, divide it by your height in meters squared, you get a number. Hmm. That number we rank on a nomogram and we care what that percentile is. Why arms and legs? Arms and legs, well, we do two. So you do appendicular lean mass index, which is arms, legs, and then we do fat-free mass index, which is all non-fat mass of the body, and you do the same calculation. Each has a pro and con. The fat-free mass index has the advantage of including all the muscle in the body, but unfortunately, it includes stuff that's not muscle. It includes organs. The appendicular lean mass index has the advantage of being a very good proxy for muscle mass in those locations because you don't have organs in your arms and legs. Mm. So we do both and they usually give um, uh, concordant answers, but sometimes they're a little discordant and we have to evaluate them. Discordant meaning they have different percentile predictions, mm. but we want to see people at or above the 75th percentile for those two muscle mass metrics. Mm. And again, you don't have to be super, that doesn't mean you're super jacked, right? Like, you know, a super jacked person is off the chart on those things. But again, no one would accuse me of being super jacked. I think I'm at the 95th percentile. So we're, this is not a, this is not a standard that is unreasonable. Mm. And the reason we care about that is the, the evidence that if you look at a person who's ALMI, is greater than the 75th percentile. That's one of the ones you were just describing. That's the appendicular lean mass got index. It, it. And you compare them to people below the 75th percentile, the mortality difference in those people, once they reach their mid seventies is a staggering difference. Hmm. So in one study, if you looked at people who were 75th percentile or higher, their 10 year survival from the age of 72 was 80%. If you looked at people who were below that, their 10-year survival was 50%. That's a pretty big difference. When you take on a new client that is coming to you specifically for longevity reasons, uh, do you start with looking for signs of degradation, the damage that they've done, or are you prescribing the things that they ought to do? No, we start, we want to, we want to get as much baseline information as possible. So everything from your family history in, in excoriating detail. Cause um, this is going to tell you about the, what you call the horseman in the book. The, yeah. What are your the agent of death? That's right. What are your, what are your risks? At least as your genes would set us up to believe, mm. uh, obviously lots of blood work, 
uh, body composition information, functional testing. So mitochondrial function, VO2 max, which is peak aerobic, uh, strength and movement. Those are really big, big buckets. And we have very specific tests that we use for each of those things. The strength and movement tests are tests we've designed over the past several years. Um, and, and they're, I think in many ways, some of our best work really, cause they're, you know, we had to come up with this stuff on our own cause nobody else really had a test that we mm -hmm. felt was as predictive of, of, you know, what we wanted to believe. So it's doing a whole bunch of that type of testing and, and using all of that to basically come up with something we called the longevity risk assessment, the LRA, which is a rank order of all the things that are a threat to their longevity. There's basically seven things that are a threat to how long you live and how well you live. And we just sort of rank them out and get to work. And that's are, when you start to get to prescriptive. What are the seven? Uh, cardiovascular disease or the diseases of atherosclerosis. So cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease, cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, uh, inclusive of all dementias, um, accidental deaths, including automotive accident. Uh, what do you look at for that? fall risk as you get older. Uh, yeah. Uh. So it's basically falls, automotive and overdose. Hmm. Um, so that would, by the way, include people who are using illicit drugs, right? If you're using illicit drugs nowadays, there's a very good chance you're running the risk of getting spiked by fentanyl, right? Last year, over 100,000 people died by accidentally ingesting fentanyl. Because it's so cheap and yeah. so people are putting it into other drugs. Yeah. Basically drug cartels are now using synthetic fentanyl, um, as a filler in drugs because it's insanely cheap. Okay. Um, then you get into uh, cognitive, uh, sort of physical decline. So orthopedic injury and physical decline. And then there's usually some special one that'll show up that's specific to an individual. So for example, you know, someone might have hemochromatosis or something like that or someone, that is. yeah, just a genetic disorder of like iron, uh, metabolism, or someone might have, you know, low kidney function or something like that. Once you kind of rank order those risks, that's what determines the getting to work part. Mm -hmm. So now you start to get prescriptive. How do you go about mitigating those risks? So then you'll take on a period what, of time. Mitigating. What are the things that you start looking at? So if I said, Hey, I, the person you want to talk to, you can't ask them any questions, but I can give you any reading you want. Would you go immediately? There's seven things we look for in the blood or, um, yeah, blood testing is very helpful, um, but it has lots of blind spots. There's no one test that offers us everything. So blood testing, mm -hmm. for example, will give us great insight into your risk of cardiovascular disease, uh, pretty good insight into your risk of dementia. Mm. What are you looking for there? I'm going to guess glucose. Yep. You're certainly looking for all things that pertain to metabolic health, all things that pertain to lipids and lipoproteins, inflammation. Uh, things like homocysteine. What would you look for for inflammation? C-reactive protein? Yeah, C-reactive protein, interleukins, things like that. Um, you also look for, um, all, again, all the lipoproteins factor into both cardiovascular disease and dementia. Sorry, really fast. I want to go back to inflammation. This is the one that scares me the most. When mm -hmm. I was a kid, you could write on my skin just by scratching me and it would welt up. Um I iced my wrist. In fact, this is where you and I first crossed paths. I was icing my wrist for 15 years. Uh, you had me try keto, which would we'll definitely talk about your change of perspective on that. Uh, that changed my life. 
And by introducing healthy fats, my inflammation plummeted, but I still, I've never done a C-reactive protein test. If you see C-reactive protein in the blood, do you know that, oh, that's coming from, or no. is it just like, okay, It's very now, nonspecific. Yeah. Yeah. So very, very high levels of C-reactive protein, which we often see, almost assuredly don't constitute pathology of concern. It's usually an hmm. acute illness. Really? Yeah. So normal C-reactive protein level is less than one. If mm -hmm. if I get a patient's blood back and it's 12, I'm calling them and I'm saying, hey, were you sick around the time we do this blood? And they're almost always saying, no, but I got sick the next day. Or yeah, I'm just, I was just coming off a bad cold. So somebody on a standard American diet won't have spikes? No, not not really? to that high. Usually what I'm more concerned with is the person who's got a C-reactive protein of two and a half that never goes away. There's something going on there. And it could be diet related. It could be autoimmune. Uh, it could be cardiovascular. Uh, it's very difficult to know. So again, the problem with most of the biomarkers around inflammation is the profound non-specificity uh, of them. Mm. When did your, uh, so if my arrogance around diet started to dwindle uh, with your book, <laughs> when when did your conviction around diet is is gonna be the answer to everything? When did, what what began to shake that? I think just kind of in the process of writing this book and getting deeper and deeper into the data, I don't know, to circa 2011 to 2012, where I even went on a whole rant about the non-importance of exercise relative to nutrition. And mm. by the way, I acknowledge upfront the irony of me writing this because this was still back in the days when I was exercising three or four hours a day. Mm. But I sort of chalk that up to, look, I have an addiction and I do this and I love it. And it's like a hobby. It's like a passion. Like I would do this if it were harmful. But like, don't look at me and think you need to be doing this. Right. All you need to be doing is, you know, controlling your diet. Hmm. Um, so, so it just became impossible for me to ignore the the literature on exercise. And what what's the thing? Like, you saw grip strength is tied to a massive decrease in all cause mortality, stuff like that. Like, what are the uh, big it's, it's indicators? The, it's the entire spectrum of it, right? So, it's the experimental literature, the epidemiologic literature, the mechanistic literature. But what's it all saying? Muscle matters. Like, if we had, I know you fucking hate the. I did this whole note taking session about how you hate like people that don't get into the nuance. And then I was like, my counterpoint to that is if you can't distill this stuff. No, look, I would then... say high cardiorespiratory fitness and mm -hmm. high muscle mass and strength are more predictive of a long life than anything else we know. Say those again. High cardiorespiratory fitness. Yes. As measured, measured by, by... VO2 max. Okay. High muscle mass, high Just strength. The amount of muscle. The amount of muscle although I would argue it's more strength and we just hmm. see a very tight correlation between strength and muscle mass okay. within reason. Interesting. That is more predictive of a long life than any other metric we have. If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start run and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all US e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly 
and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with ebay motors brake kits led headlights exhaust kits turbochargers bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply it's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Okay, so now we're going to get to, I'm going to test this at the fringes. I don't know if you know who Dr. William Lee is, but I just had him on the show and I was barraging him with questions about sumo wrestlers. And he made an assertion that I found just impossible to wrap my head around, which is that a sumo wrestler may be perfectly healthy. And I was just like, how the fuck is that? What that tells me is that I could ask you and get a prescriptive answer to the question, how do I get obese in a healthy fashion? So I can't speak to sumo wrestlers. I don't understand anything about them. I don't know. But but on its face, it's possible, right? In, based on what we just talked so about. So they can be, as long as they're hella strong. As long, well, no, no. As long as they are metabolically healthy in their obesity. There's no mm-hmm. question okay, that a sumo so wrestler is profoundly obese. Right. And it's not like just muscle mass. So a sumo wrestler is extremely high in muscle mass, is extremely high in strength, is also extremely high in fat. If they also happen to have high cardiorespiratory fitness, which I'm guessing they do mm. to do what they do, provided all that extra fat isn't creating a metabolic problem. Okay, and let's let's define that. So they're not leaking out. So they don't have visceral They don't have fat. insulin resistance. They're that able would, to uptake their dietary glucose. They can dispose of glucose. glucose just fine. They're... Um, and the reason that matters so much is because if you don't, you're getting uh, the so two issues. glucose is sticking to things. Yes. So that's that's half of the equation. So half of the damage, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but half of I the damage it. is um, the excess glucose is 
causing a lot of sticking around and it's damaging small blood vessels. The other half of the problem, maybe even a bigger half of the problem, is the excess insulin that is trying to put that glucose away is causing damage to larger blood vessels. Hmm. And also it's a growth factor that is constantly in the on switch. Feeding tumors? Cancer would certainly be the biggest concern you would have there. And that's probably why after smoking, obesity is the second most prevalent environmental trigger of cancer. Because hmm. obesity is a signal that you've got your body in grow, grow, grow mode. Well, obesity is often, though not always, accompanied by high signals of growth and inflammation, which gets back hmm. to, you know, are you a metabolically healthy or unhealthy obese person? If you're metabolically unhealthy and obese, that means it's by definition accompanied by high growth factor, high inflammation, high glucose, and all of those things are destructive to your health. So now is the fat becoming inflammatory because it sends out a hormonal signal or It sends out inflammatory signals when it's not in the fat cell, when it's not in the right fat cell, when it's not in the subcutaneous fat cell. Got it. So those visceral, those fat droplets that are around the organs are sending out inflammatory signals. So when we're looking at an obese person, just to beat this point to death, Really, the, we're just concerned about, I'm going to guess, given that you're obese, that you're probably leaking fat into the system that is becoming visceral fat, which is just loose, using the water balloon analogy, it's just loose fat and sticking to things that it's not supposed to, causing distress in the liver, I know it can cause scarring. Absolutely causing damage in the liver that, mm -hmm. yes, can absolutely lead to scarring and ultimately cirrhosis if it doesn't goes, go, go away, which is the leading cause of liver transplantation, mm. is fat accumulation in the liver not related to alcohol ingestion. Yeah. Um, and getting into the pancreas, poisoning the beta cells, making it harder for them to even make insulin. So further exacerbating the problem of high levels of glucose. Um, so yeah, but the problem is when you're looking at that person with your naked eye, you don't really know it. Okay, very interesting. All right, so back to strength. Um, getting back to our sumo wrestler. So we we would have to look for things to see if this is fat in a healthy way. And it, oh, can I say protective instead of healthy? Sure. Maybe I just have something emotional I still need to work through with obesity. Uh, but it feels like uh, the reason that a lean diabetic is in a far more problematic state is it does not have the defensive mechanism of, hey, this terrible diet that you're eating is causing the leakage of fat. Uh, and when you're obese, it's like, hey, we got you. You can pump the system full of fat. We can store it appropriately all as well. Um, so the obesity then to a point will be protective. It seems that obesity to a point is the safest place to put excess energy. Which and you're better off not consuming. Yes. Got but it. if you are consuming it, you're way better off storing it in subcutaneous fat cells and getting bigger mm. than you are just letting it dissipate into. In other words, you're better off having a bigger bathtub that's full mm -hmm. than having a smaller bathtub that's draining water onto your floor and down your heat ducts. Okay, let me ask you another question. While I get as we age, we're probably not gonna be able to do it. Is there any damage being accumulated to a Michael Phelps in his early 20s, eating 10,000 calories, but burning 10,000 calories through exercise? Yeah, great question. Um, probably not in the short run, um, and probably not if upon ceasing 
all of that activity, the energy expenditure returns back to an appropriate level. Hmm. So as long as the body's using it, you're fine. Yeah. Now, again, um, there might be a behavioral challenge there. It might not be an accident that a lot of former athletes who are, you know, basically eating as much as is humanly possible to support their energetic needs when they're young struggle to maintain health when they get older because the habit of still, I mean, I truthfully, Tom, I think I still struggle with this. Like, I mean, I'm not in a position now where I can just eat all the time. And yet I think there's a part of me that's still kind of wired to want to, right? But again, when you're not exercising six hours a day, you can't. Mm. So, and I remember, you know, even when I was young, my parents just watching with complete befuddlement as I would, I was just constantly eating I and mean, it didn't matter like i would tear through ice cream i was just always like it didn't matter it just didn't matter i was an eating machine and it was freakish for people to watch they couldn't believe it and yet i was rail lean right and they said i remember my parents saying is like you know they're like you better be careful like one day you're not going to be able to eat like this yeah that is uh the lamentations of the old looking at the young yeah no i definitely get it uh, okay, so if you, maybe the data already shows us, but if you had to guess or base it on the data, why is why does strength matter so much? Is it that cardio fitness uh, means your heart beats slower when you're not exercising and, and the differential between how much you exercise and thus speed it up, but that the amount of time you spend in that really slow resting heart rate, like that's the deal? Is it... Um, you're going to say all of the above, but like grip strength. So I'm not falling. Uh, I don't know what else. Well, I mean, storing I think, amino acids in muscle. Yeah. Like. So I think there's several things going on. So l let's talk about the limitations of the exercise. So the limitations of the data are your, their data are only as good as things that we can measure. So you know what hemoglobin A1C is? Yes. Okay. So hemoglobin A1C for people listening is a blood test you get that in a snapshot gives some prediction over what your blood glucose has been doing for the past few months. So in that sense, it's what is called an integrator, right? If you think back to calculus for people who took calculus, the integral is the area under the curve. It's the total ups and downs. It incorporates everything that's happened. And so in this case, hemoglobin A1C is an integral function of the last three months of your eating, at least as it pertains to glucose. Mm. It doesn't tell you anything about fat, protein, overall calories, doesn't tell you any of that stuff, but gives you a pretty good indication of how your body regulated glucose. Okay. Integral functions are not common in biology, unfortunately. Uh, I had a recently, uh, a very interesting guest on my podcast, and we talked about how HDL cholesterol may be an integral function for recent triglyceride levels. Mm. So fl the fluctuations in your triglycerides, and we know that lower is definitely better, becomes an inverse correlate with HDL cholesterol. So the higher your HDL cholesterol might suggest lower previous levels of triglycerides. So that's kind of interesting. That has not been validated, but it's an interesting mm. hypothesis. Um, but for the most part, we just don't get great integral functions. It turns out VO2 max is a really good integral function of how much cardio training you do. Mm. So VO2 max, have you ever had a test done? I have not. Do, but do you know how it works? Uh, I think so. So you run uh, all out and then you go slow, get your heart rate back to 100, run all out again. Well, that's how you would train for it. But the test is done 
uh, on e- either on a treadmill or a bike. Those are pretty much the only two ways to do it. You have a mask on mm-hmm. and you're pushed. So you, you, know, you get a warm up and stuff, but then you're basically pushed until you fail. Where you're like, uh, I have to jump off the treadmill. Yes. Got it. Um, and what's hap- what they're and measuring. And sprinting. So they're trying to no, figure out. No, 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 it's not. It's, it's um, at the end, it feels like you're sprinting, but they'll, mm-hmm. you know, if you go to max test might take 10 minutes. They're gradually working you up and watching your consumption of oxygen rise. So this mask is measuring how much oxygen you consume because it has a little oxygen sensor on it. So it knows the flow rate of oxygen that you're putting in and it's measuring the concentration coming out. And it's, it says, okay, right now you're consuming one liter of oxygen. So you and I sitting here right now are consuming three or 400 milliliters of oxygen per minute. Hmm. Very little. If pushed to your max, you might be 10 times that. Whoa. Um, the fittest athletes in the world, you know, will get to 20 times that at, they have the capacity to use so much oxygen. Hmm. So that's what the VO2 max test is. It is measuring your maximum consumption of oxygen. The higher that level, the longer you're going to live. There is no number. There is no biomarker. There's no finding in all of biology that is more predictive of a person's length of life than that specific Mm. number. And the question is why? And I believe the reason is VO2 max is such a potent integrator for what you have to do to have that number. You aren't born with that number being high. There's clearly a genetic component to that number. Mm. You know, the, the highest people in the world ever measured are born with a great potential for it, but they won't get that potential without training. And the training you have to do to get that is pretty hard. So what, the, what this tells you is that that type of training is what's really valuable. The same is true with strength. When you compare very strong people to very weak people, you see almost as high a prediction of longevity as you do with high VO2 max to low VO2 max. And again, it's important that we are strong for all the reasons you said. It helps you prevent falling. It helps you stand up. It helps you do all of these things that matter. But I think the reason it's telling us you're also going to live a long time is because it tells us what you had to do to get there. Mm Mm-hmm. When we see that the top 10% of people with grip strength compared to the bottom 10% of people with grip strength have a 70% less chance of getting Alzheimer's disease and a 70% chance of dying from Alzheimer's disease, it's not because grip strength by itself protects your brain. It's because those people by definition are doing so much more physically and it's the doing part that is protecting their brain. Hmm. Man, this is uh, very interesting. So let, uh, I'm going to ask it. So let's imagine a world where we have uh, just insane AI with VR. Do you think that I would be able to stimulate my brain in a way that, because people talk about for staving off dementia, like dancing is Mm -hmm. the thing. It's a thing. So can I obfuscate the need for the physical part if I'm stimulating the brain or is it like, nope, like you're not doing the things you would need to do to make your heart. Uh, and again, I don't know if it's resting heart rate becomes the thing that's good or because if it really is just the thing you have to do and not the outcome of the thing, right, right. uh, how, can I fake it? Uh, probably you would get some benefit in a, if you did this as a thought experiment where let's assume we can truly 
above your neck replicate the experience, mm. that's probably giving you some of the benefit, but I don't think it's giving you the majority of the benefit. So the muscle acts like an endocrine organ. So when it is put under the appropriate stress, it is releasing myokines, right? It is releasing hormones that are having a beneficial value. For example, BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, mm. is being released and providing effectively nutrition to neurons. So you actually have to do the thing to get it, not just right. thinking you're doing the thing. Also, let's not forget all of the other benefits of exercise, such as the metabolic benefits. So we talked about all of this business around insulin resistance. Well, the number one cure for insulin resistance is exercise. That's why those sumo wrestlers can be morbidly obese by most definitions and still potentially be quite insulin sensitive because of how active they are. Mm. And then, of course, we get into the structural piece of this, right, which is what good is it to have a brain that works if your body actually does not? Yeah, or vice versa, Yep, for that matter. Uh, okay, so ketogenics was something, it really was transformational. And as I discovered ketogenics through you, I'm very curious to hear um, you no longer feel the same that you did. What changed? Well, it's a broader topic, I think, around that of dietary restriction. So I think my aperture has just widened significantly. So you have to take a step way back and ask the question, how does one, what are the ways in which one can change their diet? Hmm. So let's come back to your example in a moment, because I think if I recall, when you went on a ketogenic diet, it wasn't in an effort to lose weight. No. Yeah. So let's put you, your case aside for a moment and instead discuss it through the lens of how most people think about ketogenic diets, vegan diets, pick your diets. It's, it's usually some form of energy restriction. So I think initially I was, like most people are, pretty myopic about my views of energy restriction. And over time, that thinking evolved into saying, look, there are really broadly speaking, three strategies to reduce intake. One strategy is to just directly fixate on the reduction of energy intake. That's called caloric restriction. So bodybuilders are a great example of this, right? Like they really know how to weigh and measure every single thing they're eating. And they certainly understand during an anabolic phase, this is how much energy I need. During a catabolic phase or cutting phase, I need this much. And they've got this down to a science. And it's really remarkable. I mean, it but it's a science optimized for the reduction of fat. That's right. That's right. And maintenance of muscle. That's exactly right. Not so longevity. That's right. Just for anybody that's right. Absolutely attention. right. So, so, but, but let's be clear. Like, I don't think there's a better example of any type of person on the planet Agreed. that's figured out how to control intake up and down yep. and to produce a perfect result with respect to that aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Well said. And for most people, that's really hard to do. Um, it's hard to do because you can't really ignore it. Like you can't just eat without thinking. You always have to be paying attention to what you're doing. But it is the most direct way to go about getting the results you want. So that's method one. Method two says, how about I don't pay attention to what I'm eating or when I'm eating, um, but I pay attention, pardon me, how about I don't pay attention to what I'm eating or uh, how much I'm eating, but I just pay attention to when I eat. So that's called time restriction. Mm. People call that intermittent fasting. And 
if I make the window in which I eat small enough, um, I will reduce energy intake in total. So if I said to you, you know, you can only have one meal a day, chances are you are going to lose weight. Um, now people thought that, well, there must be something magical about intermittent fasting beyond the caloric reduction, but that turns out to not be the case. It's been tested in several uh, studies now, and it's clear that if you eat 2000 calories in one sitting, it's no better or worse for you, uh, at least from a weight perspective, than if you eat 2000 calories spread out at the course of a day. Hmm. It's probably worse for you in another way though, which is you're a little more likely to lose muscle mass because you won't be able to get the right amount of amino acids into your muscles. I don't want to derail your point, but we are going to have to talk about autophagy because I intermittent fast like a fiend. Great. We'll 365. Yeah. Okay. So then we get to the third method of caloric reduction, which is the use of what's called dietary restriction. So here we pick things within the diet and we cut them out. And the more restrictive that is, the more likely it is to produce an energy reduction and therefore the more likely you are to achieve the goal of weight loss. Mm. So the glib example I always give is if you went on the no lettuce diet, you would not lose an ounce, right? right? It's simply not restrictive enough. If you went on the only potato diet, you would lose an insane amount of weight. Hmm. You simply couldn't eat enough potatoes to maintain. Now the that's not a healthy diet, right? No one would think that the all potato diet is going to produce an ideal health outcome, but you will lose a lot of weight. Right. So keto is simply a very form, a restrictive form of that diet. And many people lose a lot of weight on a ketogenic diet because they are limiting so many things, right? They're limiting so many carbs. It's also for many people much more satiating. So it actually readily reduces their hunger. And so they simply don't want to eat more. So they have fewer food choices and they don't want to eat as much, but you can gain weight on a ketogenic diet. If you eat a lot, you have to be careful because you're generally eating more energy dense foods on a ketogenic diet. And I've seen lots of people blow up on ketogenic diets because they somehow think it's a license to eat as much fat as they want. Not the case. So now let's talk about, so, so that's that sort of coming to that conclusion made me realize, oh, well, there's nothing really magical about any particular diet when it comes to energy balance. But now each of these diets has their own trade-offs around other metrics of health. So for example, we talked about the importance of protein. Protein is, I think, the most important of the macronutrients. I know everybody wants to argue about fat and carbs, but I think the, the game is won and lost with protein. Hmm. And, you know, the recommended dietary allowance of protein is unfortunately very low. So there's most people are being told to eat 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight, and that's literally half what you need to be eating. Whoa. Yeah, that's the amount of protein. For, for body mass that I carry or ideal body mass? Total body weight. Hmm. Yeah. So if I at six foot weighed 250 pounds, I'm going to be wanting to eat something like 1.6 X that in protein in kilograms. So, yeah. So if you were, if you weighed, if you were whatever, 200 pounds, I would want you consuming at least 160 grams of protein hmm. and maybe closer to 200, depending on your demand and depending okay. on your age and depending on the type of protein you're getting. So a lot of different diets, let's pick two that I think one has to be, they're, they're doable, but you have to be careful about getting enough protein. So let's start with a plant-based diet. So plant-based diet, by definition, you can't have any animal protein. 
So all of a sudden you're doing away with the best form of amino acids. Mm. You know, one could argue that when we eat animals or animal protein, it is a more pure synthesis of the amino acids that are coming from plants, right? So like a cow, all it's eating is plant, mm. but you eat a cow or like venison is one of my favorite things, right? So the, I'm eating wild venison from Hawaii that only eats grass and yet it's the richest source of amino acids I can sink my teeth into. In other words, it's digestive system, it's metabolism is doing this remarkable thing I can't do, which is turning grass into the richest, densest source of protein. If I want to go back and eat the grass, it's fine, but I just have to acknowledge I'm going to have to eat a lot more of it because mm. it's not a great source of protein. So the bioavailability of plant protein is about 70% that of animal protein, and it's not as rich in the most important amino acids. So when we have patients who are plant-based, and they say, oh, do I have to give up my plant-based diet? I say, not necessarily. Um, and if it's working for you in all other ways other than this, then there's a workaround here. But the workaround requires you being very deliberate about your protein quantity. Mm. Another example is you. So we're going to come back to the case that you just said, which is what about people who are intermittently fasting? Do they have to, you know, is that a bad thing? Is that a good thing? Well, it depends. But if a person is intermittently fasting, you're going to see a lot of muscle loss unless they're very thoughtful about their protein intake. Mm. So, you know, if a person's intermittently fasting 16, eight, you can generally get away with it because in eight hours, you can get usually at least three good servings of protein. But we have a lot of people who are intermittently fasting and they're only eating two meals, no snacks. They can't come close to getting the right amount of protein in because you can't have, let's just say you're on the 160 gram a day program, 80 grams twice in your day is not going to cut it because you can't put 80 grams to work. It's too much protein for the body to utilize. Peter, man, this is so different than how I live. Well, no, but so, think about it. Like bodybuilders are very thoughtful of this, right? If you look at bodybuilders, yeah, they're kind of- I thought we debunked all the like six meals a day and you're saying no, like no. I actually do need to break it back up into if, smaller pieces. If you're optimizing for muscle mass, yes. And it can't be too small. Mm. So this is where it gets really crazy. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. If you're eating really small amounts of protein, yes. like 20 grams at a time, you're not going to get muscle protein synthesis because the okay. liver is going to, the liver basically takes first dibs on the protein and undergoes gluconeogenesis. It's just going to make glucose out of protein. So if you just trickle tiny amounts of protein in, you're not getting muscle protein synthesis. I'm if turning you, it into glucose through a really glucose. inefficient process. Yeah. You're just, you're, the liver is turning it into glucose. If you eat tons of protein and the limit based on the literature seems to be somewhere between 40 and 50 grams in one sitting. 
Okay. Once you exceed 40 to 50 grams in one sitting, the excess just goes into gluconeogenesis. Huh. Wow. Okay. This is very fascinating. So if you're so, trying to get 140 grams a day, you really need to optimize it by four times 40. And, uh, wow. Okay. So amazing. This is amazing. I'm always game to change. Uh, okay. So I'm breaking my protein up four by 40. If 160 is my goal, what period of time do I need to put between them? Because I would be happy to do that. Like it, I'm, I What's your feeding window? What do you like to eat? When to when? Man, I, I usually keep it tight, like four or five hours max. Okay. So if you really want to do it that way, then you're going to have to have well, I'd only high want to protein do it that way snacks. If, if I need to. Well, but, but, but I'm saying like, if that's working for you from a weight management standpoint and a total caloric. I'm a freak of discipline. I will never accidentally gain weight. You don't have to worry about that with me. What you have to worry about with me is right now, I believe that autophagy is necessary to avoid cancer. I don't want to die of cancer. So I intermittent fast to make sure that I'm in autophagy. But there's no evidence that 20 hours of fasting is sufficient to induce autophagy. Yeah, see, I thought there was, man. I thought autophagy kicked in at like 15, 16 hours. In mice. Like, uh-huh. But mice will die in three days of not eating. Well, that's bad. Yeah. So in other words, like we're just, it's apples to oranges. We have no, I mean. Do we know where it kicks in for humans? No, because we don't have biomarkers for autophagy. Uh-huh. My intuition, which might be as useful as a warm bucket of hamster vomit, is that it's probably three to five days, three to four days, Ouch. maybe. Do you do any prolonged fasting? I don't anymore. Wow. Um, and I'm not opposed to it. Like I would probably still do, you know. If you were diagnosed with cancer, what would you do? Yeah, I would probably get back to fasting more. Evidence-based or just throwing everything at it? Mechanistic. Yeah. Give me the mechanism. Uh, You know you get into autophagy. Deprivation of growth factors. Yeah. Very interesting. Also, selective sensitization of cancer versus non-cancer cells during chemo, right? So there is some evidence from Walter Longo's work that- when you're undergoing chemotherapy, doing so in a caloric deficit can be beneficial because the cancer cell is differentially and disproportionately stressed by mm. caloric restriction and then the normal cell. And therefore you're, cause remember chemo, like the magic of chemo is not that it kills cells or kills cancer cells. It's that it selectively kills cancer cells. Mm-hmm. Anything can kill a cancer cell. It's how do you kill a cancer cell and not a regular cell? Right. So how do you, how do you, enhance the spread between those two. And it might be that caloric restriction uh, is a way to do it. And it Mm -hmm. renders the cancer cell even more susceptible. And at the same time that you're hitting it with chemo, it becomes uh, more likely to die at the expense of the healthy cell. That's, Mm -hmm. That's the mechanism. And there is some data to suggest that that's the case. Okay. So, uh, autophagy we know is going to kick in at much long, we hope is kicking in at much longer periods. Uh, deprivation can still help with cancer from a growth factor. Remember you also kick in autophagy with exercise. So if you're looking for another, absolutely. What, what is autophagy, right? Autophagy. Self eating. Well, yes, yes, yes. But what it's occurring in nutrient absence Uh and there's a great way to induce cellular energy reduction, which is exercise. When you exercise, cellular energy goes down. That's why exercise increases AMP kinase activity just as fasting does. Hmm. So we, you, you don't want to underestimate the benefit of exercise in tricking the cell into thinking its nutrients are scarce. 
okay, then what kind of exercise? I'm going to guess it has to be the kind that I hate the most. And if VO2 max is the under the curve revealer, uh, it's what we were talking about. Very high intensity, period of rest, I, I very high intensity. Well, that's how you train VO2 max, but that's not what I have to do. No, to get because that's VO2 only, max. that's, that should only be 20% of your cardio volume. 80% of your cardio volume should be steady state uh-huh. and moderate intensity. In yeah. Okay. Uh, the 80%, I like that a lot better. Interesting. Yep. That's zone two, as we yep. call it. Yeah, yeah. And that's done at a level where you could carry out a conversation if you had to, but you don't want to. Right. That's the that's the litmus test. That is a perfect description. Okay. So uh, going back to protein. So maybe, in fact, no, you're, you're saying just flat out the intermittent fasting is probably not helping you at all. And if anything, it's probably making it hard for you to get protein and spare your muscle. Uh, you need to spread this out. You spoke in kilograms, which really threw me off. That's okay. How much do you weigh in pounds? Uh, 185. Okay. So 160 to 180 grams per day. So four meals at 40 to 45 grams is perfect for you. Okay. Spread out over ideally. As long as possible. And to be clear, these don't have to be meals. Uh Like two of my four. 45 grams of protein. That's a fucking meal. It's not though. Think about it. Like, what is that? 200 calories? It's like a chicken breast. It's yeah, that's, I mean, you don't consider that a meal. That's a rounding error. Um, no, for me, like I'm doing, I'll do like, I have these venison sticks Uh, that are 10, like a little jerky venison. Bought or made? Uh, they're actually now bought. You can now buy them. I like that. Okay. Um, so each one is 10, uh, grams of protein Mm -hmm. and 50 calories. And I will have five of those as a snack. There's 50 grams of protein right there with 250 calories. Like it's nothing. Okay. What about, uh, are they highly processed? Anything to avoid there? No problem because no, they're made the by a certain the company. They're made by a company that I'm involved in. So, I mean, I, I, I love it the most, obviously as a guy that only gets involved with things that I care about yeah, and yeah. think are real. So it's they called are. Maui Nui venison. Okay. These are, um, this is a type of deer called axis deer that are invasive to the state of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And so they're harvested there in the most humane manner fashionable, which is, what allows the animal to be completely stress-free. So they're harvested by sniper at night under night vision. And whoa. Yeah. So if you think about it, like harvesting an animal is a very stressful thing for an animal. Uh-huh. Like if you're thinking about how a cow is harvested, yeah. even if it has the most um, wonderful life, you know, it's grass fed, it's out in a pasture, it's not inside, like all of that might be great. And it is certainly better than the alternative, but the very end of its life is still quite stressful. This is a moral thing, or does this moral? No, I believe I, I, I believe I believe it impacts the quality of the meat. Interesting, right? So think about the cortisol levels that are surging through that animal's body right at the time of its death. Yeah, but from an evolutionary standpoint, everything got eaten. Oh, and yeah, so yeah, yeah. no, no, like, I'm not. That's not a moral question. I'm saying from a health perspective. Yeah, but I'm saying you're a lion. The gazelle you're chewing yeah. on is freaking the fuck out as you eat it alive. So there's no way that can have some major no, I think deleterious. I, it actually probably has an impact on taste more than anything else. Hmm. Um, the other thing is it's very hard. I mean, this is more of an argument of why I love wild game yeah. is wild game eats the best plants, the best feed, right? So when you go to the grocery store and you're buying, you know, a regular grain fed steak, it's not eating what it evolved to eat. Hmm. Like it's, you kind of want things that are as close to eating what they evolved to eat. And, you know, for, for, for deer, that's like, that's basically grass. Right. So 
Um, anyway, these things are processed in a way that basically has nothing in them, right? So you're just, I, I'm just getting pure protein. Yeah, I don't want to derail us, but this is really interesting. So you snipe the deer at night using night vision goggles. So it basically dies in its sleep. It dies Very instantaneously. In sleep, yep, but. dies instantaneously, stress-free. Um, and that is so interesting. How'd you find out about these guys? Um, I met the founder of the company five, six years ago. Um, and we just immediately became friends. I became completely fascinated by the problem that they were trying to solve, which was how, you know, the Hawaiian government is trying to eradicate this species, mm -hmm. um, because it is destroying the island. So this really? is a species of deer that was brought to Hawaii in the 1950s for hunting, but it had Whoops. no predator. It was brought from India where its only predator was the tiger. Mm -hmm. You brought it to Hawaii, it had no predator, and it has now run amok. So it is kind of destroying three mm -hmm. islands of Hawaii. Maui, and are they finding a way to do this sustainably now so that they can keep having them? The goal is by 2030 to have it be sustainable. Right now, mm -hmm. they are still not able to do it sustainably. In other words, wow, right now, the deer are fast. still growing at a rate that is too significant. Jesus. Uh, headshots? Yes. Interesting. Wow. I don't know why I find that so fascinating, but that's very interesting. Okay. So back to protein intake. Right. So point is you could have a whey Do you protein want me to shake. wake up? I'm like, oh, chomp, chomp into the no, Not necessarily. Or? Like, I mean, again, it depends on when you like to exercise, for example. So, so I should exercise fasted? Is that um, the point of that? It depends. If I'm going to exercise first thing in the morning, yes. I do it fasted. If I'm going to wait a couple of hours, I'll have a protein meal first. But it doesn't matter because I've always heard that you've got so much glucose if you're eating and now you're just going to get fat and you're never going to lose yeah. weight. It doesn't matter. No. So, so um, I generally prefer to exercise fasted, but if the workout is getting pushed till later, a couple hours later, I'm going to have mm. something before, not mm. because I need to, but because I want to make sure I spread out those protein servings enough. Wow. So at least two of my protein servings aren't meals. Mm -hmm. They're like, again, the jerky is not a meal. It's a snack. And then like a whey protein shake, again, 40, 50 grams of whey protein in some, you know, cashew you'll milk. do, would you, uh, I'm willing to stomach the venison snacks and or chicken breast and or eggs, eggs. Yep. Great. Cool. Love them. Uh, so if I'm willing to eat the amount of protein that I need in eggs, venison, whatever, would I still do a protein shake? Not necessarily, no, not at all. And do you, because I have developed slowly over time a deep aversion to anything that's processed. Yep. So I'm trying to get as close to biting that's into fantastic. the that's walking animal as possible. Abs absolutely, yeah, okay. that's great. Okay, so, but you, you're and not then you, stressed and then you about would protein have, powder. And then you would have like kind of two meals, right? So I'll probably also have, like my lunch would be a salad with chicken breast or salmon. Mm -hmm. And then my dinner, dinner's the easiest meal to hit your protein target, right? Like that's like falling off a log. Just because it's you're typical gonna, to eat a yeah, steak chicken or whatever. Have whatever you're going to have. Talk to me, red meat, white meat, matter? Uh, again, I think it matters less the color of the meat, matters much more the source of the meat, matters much more about how that Meaning animal grass fed, grain fed. Yeah, and, and how close can you get it to an animal that's in its natural state? Truthfully, it's much easier for me to get wild game that's red meat. Hmm. Like, I much prefer elk and axis deer, both wild game that either I'm killing or someone I know is killing. And it's the wild that's the important part. Yeah. It's an animal that's eating in the environment. It's it's an animal that's not contained. Right. And the contained is problematic largely because of the diet that we yep. know they will need? Yep. Okay. Uh, how much meat, how much of your protein comes from meat by percentage? Um, I don't know. I'd have to figure it out, but clearly the majority. Hmm. 
Because the one thing I've always- I also like Greek yogurt, by the way. So that's another thing. That's a hard left. So Greek yogurt has a lot of protein. It does actually. It's quite high in protein. eat it because of the taste, probiotics. Just another way to get protein in to diversify a little bit. From boredom or diversity matters? Yeah, just some diver- No, no, just for me, diversity matters. Like I like to mix things up. And and it's just, again, it's just a function of time. Like maybe I don't have time to make an omelet right now and I'm, I got a quick call I got to jump on so I can mm-hmm. scarf down a bowl of Greek yogurt with some nuts in it. This- seems impossible it, it does seems too good no it, it sounds work. amazing like i feel like the way that i live right now would take a lot more discipline than what you're describing i'll be interested to see if that's true in practice um okay so let's fit eggs into the mix here uh i'd love to get an idea knowing that individual, there's a lot of individual variability here. In fact, we should probably talk about saturated fat at the individual level. The one thing in my diet, I do not at all pay attention to how much saturated fat I eat. I don't go out of my way to consume it, but I make zero attempt to avoid it. And because I don't check my blood levels nearly enough, I am always a little hesitant to push my exact diet onto people. Um, Do I need to worry about saturated fat? Potentially, yeah. Um, saturated fat can increase your, uh, synthesis of cholesterol. It can also, with enough of it being consumed, the liver can sense the amount of saturated fat and basically shut down the clearance of cholesterol, meaning the, the, the bringing of cholesterol into the liver. Can I quote Peter Atia on cholesterol in the book Outlive? If you haven't read it, I highly suggest it. He said, your total cholesterol number is about as meaningful to dying from heart disease as your eye color. That's right. So you're bringing up cholesterol. So some, something matters. Something about cholesterol matters, but not the total number, right? Total cholesterol is, again, not a particularly relevant number. ApoB, which is the uh, constant, which is a measurement, a laboratory measurement that is the concentration of lipoproteins that carry cholesterol into arteries, that's what you should care deeply about. But when someone says, what's your total cholesterol? 200 milligrams per deciliter, who cares? Hmm. Doesn't mean anything. But there is a type of cholesterol that is carried in a certain- Well, so cholesterol, for the most part, that 200 milligrams per deciliter is your total cholesterol is divided into three types of lipoproteins. Mm -hmm. Each has a different carrier? uh, No, that 200 comes, is the aggregation of- approximately three lipoproteins, high density lipoprotein, low density lipoprotein, and very low density lipoprotein. So if you look at your lab, you get, you get a blood test done. If it's done correctly, a lot of them are not, but if it's done correctly and they do a direct measurement of LDL cholesterol, you will be able to add up the VLDL cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, the HDL cholesterol, and the sum of those three will equal the total cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So if the total cholesterol is 200 and the HDL cholesterol is 70 and the VLDL cholesterol is 20, the LDL cholesterol will be 110. Yep. And of those three numbers, um, we would say the most important insight you could get would be to take total cholesterol subtract HDL cholesterol, and that number is called non-HDL cholesterol, that number starts to become a pretty good predictor of risk. Hmm. So total cholesterol- Because those are damaging in some way. Yeah, that's now telling you the total cholesterol content of LDL and VLDL, and those are the destructive lipoproteins. Hmm. Now, an even better number is not how much cholesterol is contained in those two things, but how many of those two things do you have? And that's what's captured by ApoB. 
Can you explain that more? So each of those lipoproteins, the VLDL and the LDL, mm -hmm. have a protein wrapped around them. That protein is called apolipoprotein B100, which is a very sexy name. It's abbreviated ApoB. So if you measure ApoB, because LDL and VLDL have one and only one apolipoprotein B100 on them, the ApoB number is the concentration of those two particles. Hmm. And the gradient of that, the more of those particles you have, the, the greater the probability that those particles are getting into your artery walls. Got it. So the, the number of those do matter. And yes. so if I just subtract out my HDL. Subtract your HDL from your total cholesterol, you get the cholesterol concentration of those two particles. But, um, but And that's predictive of risk. Mm -hmm. But what's more predictive of risk is the number of those particles. Okay, which so is how, ApoB. how do you, I don't know if it's going to be fruitful, but there's something in that math that I'm not following. So if I got back my cholesterol count and I look at them, I'd be able to tell of my 200, let's say, yep. uh, 110 are the two that are bad, uh, but there's some total number. It sounds like you're It's a describing. separate measurement. You don't, you wouldn't impute it from the, those cholesterol. So you just have to go to ApoB. You have to get the ApoB measured. That's Got right. It. Yeah. Okay, it's so another laboratory measurement. Understood. Understood. That okay. is unfortunately rarely done. Is it, can you just ask your doctor, give me an ApoB measurement? Absolutely. Or? Okay. Yeah. It's a relatively inexpensive test. It's about, people. Just depending on the it. test, it's somewhere between five and $20. Do they not do it because they disagree with you or they just they don't, don't know. know? They don't know what it is. Troubling. Very. Okay. Uh, so in fact, we should talk at least briefly about this idea. So in the book, you talk about medicine 3.0 versus medicine 2.0. Medicine 2.0 is all about curing. Medicine 3.0 is all about prevention. Um, how do I we- I would call medicine 2.0 more about treating than curing. Okay, fair. It's largely Very not fair. curative, right? Very good distinction. Uh, okay, so if you were gonna give me the- um, the little toolkit of medicine 3.0, uh, what, how would you begin to bundle that? Like, what are the, the things that I should be going towards? Well, again, to your point, so medicine 3.0 really says we've reached the limits of what medicine 2.0 is good for. Medicine 2.0 is really good at curing, uh, acute problems. Mm. So it's really good at curing, um, infections traumas, acute issues. It's really bad at treating chronic problems, mm -hmm. cancer, uh, you know, recurrent heart disease, neurodegenerative disease, type two diabetes. It's really bad at treating those things. And therefore all it really does is prolong the period of time you have those things. And I go through a lot of explanation in the book as to why that strategy is not the right strategy. So living longer is not accomplished by living longer with a disease. Living longer is accomplished by living longer without disease. Once you realize that, you inevitably come to the obvious conclusion that a new type of medicine is needed, which must be focused on extending the period of time you do not have disease. Mm. And that word is prevention, which has been bastardized to mean virtually nothing because everybody talks about prevention, but it has no meaning, right? So true prevention has to start very early. True prevention 
needs a set of tools that Medicine 2.0 doesn't participate in. Medicine 2.0, which is the medical system that every one of us who's trained goes through, is largely a pharmacologic playbook. Now, you're going to get people who sit here and say, Our ph all pharmacology is bad, medicine is bad. No, 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 that's not true at all. Pharmacology is wonderful. Pharmacology has done amazing things in Medicine 2.0, and we would want to use all of those pharmacologic tools as needed in Medicine 3.0, but it's literally, you know, one-fifth of the equation. Where is nutrition? Where is exercise? Where is sleep? Where is emotional health? Mm -hmm. Those things are also needed to delay the onset of chronic disease, and none of us got trained in those tools. So if, if a doctor is going to help their patient with those other four tools, they're going to have to learn about it outside of training.